Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sadly, if I love him the way that I say I do, then probably the best thing I can do is respect his progress and his path and just let it go. A man who called himself an avenging angel was in court today. I knocked on his front door, and when he answered his front door, I pushed him inside and stepped inside with him, um, sat him down in a chair, and I proceeded to open hand slap him in his face, forehand and backhand. And they say in one case he beat a man so severely with a hammer that he fractured his skull. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part five of my chat with the man they call the Alaskan Avenger. Jason Vukovic was sentenced to 23 years in prison for the assault of three registered sex offenders, a crime he says he is 100% guilty of. Today is the final episode, for now, of Jason's story. But we will be checking in with him to continue to follow his journey to freedom. Again, as always with this story, a strong warning regarding the discussions of abuse of children, which will feature heavily in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. As we know already, Jason was using the US online sex offenders registry list to vet the information he was given by members of the public cross-referencing the names on an online database. Although Jason tells me he at one stage even went to get a paper version from the state trooper's office. At a certain point in time, I even contacted the state trooper's office and I asked them for a current registry of the sex offenders in the state and I went there and I spoke to one of the Alaska state troopers um, and then I got a paper version of the sex offender registry. And one of the things that he told me was that they simply don't have the finances and the resources to track these people. So the way they know a pedophile is not living at the address that he is supposed to be at um, is only if a warrant comes out for their arrest for some crime of some type and they go to the address that they're registered to and then find out that the pedophile no longer lives there. 
In our previous episode, Jason talked me through a number of occasions where he came up against these predators, men who had been convicted of crimes against children. He would walk them into their homes and begin to open-hand slap them across the face as he berated them for their crimes. I wanted to ask him about his mental state during these attacks. Was he in complete control of his emotions or was he taken over by a sense of rage due to his own experiences as a child? So, you know, what's interesting about that question is I would say that uh, uh, being raised in a religious household, as we were getting beaten with two-by-fours systematically on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, we were taught all kinds of things about righteous anger. And that's one of the things that he would say to us after a beating was how, you know, uh, this was righteous anger and that this was not something that they wanted to do, but the Lord commanded it etc., etc., um, and not, again, not to sound trite or sarcastic in any way, but I will tell you this, righteous anger most definitely boiled up within me. I would not say it was uncontrolled rage in 99% of the encounters. It was just a sense of righteous anger, um, and I was just very intent in my spirit and in my heart, um, and in because I understood what it was like to be the child on the receiving end of whatever this person was doing. Um, and I wanted that to be sure that, that the next night or the next day that that child was not going to get um, another dose of whatever treatment he had gotten the day before. You know, it's very interesting to me because in direct correlation with that question about, about what I felt during that time, I remember one time being beaten um, for stealing a, a small snack pie out of the freezer of my house. Mm. Um, and this was a time where, where he wanted me to pull my pants down, and he was beating me with a two-by-four, and I fell flat on my face, and he continued beating me. And then I bounced off the bed onto the floor, and he continued beating me. And I put my hands behind me to stop because uh, it hurt so much, and he continued beating me to where my arms were also bruised, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you could possibly understand the nature and intensity of the assaults I underwent as a child, um, then it would be easier to understand that what I delivered to these guys for the most part, with the exception of one time um, with with one of them with a hammer, these were very intermediate uh, uh you know, yeah, mild Nowhere compared to what neater. you were you, you yeah. dealt with. Yeah, for sure. Jason went on to talk me through the second assault that he would eventually be charged for. This incident would, in fact, end up handing the police some pretty damning evidence against him when he's later arrested. Yeah, so the second one was uh, was actually a child pornographer, and again, I had gotten word. Um, of somebody that was producing, thank you, bro, producing child pornography in the neighborhood and uh, vetted him online. And yeah, he was uh, registered um, as a sex offender, had had six or or three counts, three or four or five counts um, of child pornography already. Um, And that particular night, it was interesting because I was in a home um, with a couple of acquaintances, and, and there was a couple of girls there, 19 or 20-year-old girls. Um, and I asked one of the guys if they wanted to go with me that I had some work that I had to go take care of. 
um, and, and told them what it was. And the guys immediately were like, oh, hell no, absolutely not. We're not going to go. Um, but the girls, it surprised me because they were like, uh, one of them had been um, raped when she was young, and the other one said that her dad had taken her with her uncles and their friends, um, and they had used them sexually, and she had been burned on the bottoms of her feet with cigars and just all sorts of horrible things the two girls described. And they were like, yeah, we want to go with you for sure. Um, so that particular night, I brought these two girls with me. Um, and again, it was, it was the same condominium that I had visited before um, that happened to be unlocked where the, the tough guy said, yeah, I was so glad to have you around. And they had left the side door unlocked for me to come back that night. Um, so that night I was able to come inside and go up to his front door and knock and knock and it took a long time but he finally answered <clears throat> and uh, I sort of backpedaled him into his living room and sat him down in a chair um, and it was interesting because the girls came in behind me um, and while I was slapping this guy and delivering a sermon unbeknownst to me without any uh, consent or knowledge on my part Apparently, one of the girls had pulled out her phone and was videoing the entire encounter. Um, and I did not know about any of this. Um, and they found, like, some sort of a, a I, don't, I don't want to say a shrine, but I guess behind the clothing in his master bedroom closet, there was all kinds of pictures, child pornography-related pictures of children and video and stuff like that. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, while they were rifling through his things, um, I was slapping him in the living room, had him seated in a chair. Um, and one of the girls, like I say, had clandestinely videoed it. Um, and this encounter only lasted maybe 10 or 12 minutes. Um, and I think at the end of this, we, we, they, the girls, had loaded up, you know, a couple of his mountain bikes and things like that because I told them, take anything you want from him. Um, you know, whatever, whatever this sort of sex offender has uh, that, that benefits his life, it belongs to you. Your life has been ruined by one, so take whatever you want. And uh, so we took the stuff that they collected and we left um, after I had slapped him for about 10 minutes or so. Um, and this became important or interesting later on because the night I got arrested outside of the third person's home, um, I had one of those girls with me in the car. She had just been waiting in the car, um, and when they arrested her, they or arrested me and took her, they seized her phone. Um, so some number of months later, when my attorney came to visit me out in the jail, um, I walk in the attorney visitation room, um, and he's got his laptop on the table facing himself, and I can hear my own voice um, coming out of the laptop, and he said, well, look what the prosecutor's office just turned over to us. And he spins the laptop around, and there it is, uh, a, a video of me from behind um, slapping the shit out of this pedophile, uh, delivering a pretty righteous message to him about messing with little kids in the state of Alaska and how sick and wrong it is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I can tell you my reaction at that time when I watched it, um, I told my attorney, you know what? That is a pretty righteous motherfucker right there. I'm going to tell you what, that guy is doing the business. And uh, again, I am not a person that is violent by nature, nor do I encourage that sort of thing or take pleasure in it. Um, but, you know, that, that was definitely a message delivered correctly to a monster.
You know what I, I noticed about, you know, you're talking about that situation. You, you use the terms delivering a sermon, a righteous message and stuff like that. Obviously, you were brought up in that, as we know, in that extreme religion situation in, within your home. Am I right in saying you don't have those strong beliefs in God now? Yeah, not at all. No. Not in an organized religious sort of way. No. Not by but, any means. Yeah, so I just find it interesting the way you, you talk about how you dealt with these people. And it, it's almost got a, a religious, you know, feel to it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, you can't, I mean, honestly, to this day, um, I am a spiritualist in that I see how it affects regular life and group structures uh, and politics and things around me. Um, and I definitely um, was very interested in spiritual things and have studied them deeply many paths because um, I was very interested in how they are built and constructed um, because I lived under the spell of one of them for a very long time. Um, and I think religion and child abuse are hand in glove um, and in a very strange sort of way. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely... Um, you know, and those sort of terms and terminology and the way I see the world, it probably still affects me to this very day, for sure. Mm. We now move on to assault number three, which would also be the night Jason was arrested and would see freedom for the very last time. Yeah, so I, um, this was the guy who, when I, when I, I had been told that he was a pedophile that was molesting someone's sister, um, and that he was a youth music leader for a church locally. And I found that very, very hard to believe that uh, a registered pedophile would be allowed that sort of private access to people's children. Um, but turns out he, he had been convicted of molesting a 10-month-old baby. Um, and that night I went to his home, knocked on the front door, knocked on the windows. The light came on in his master bedroom. And I was telling him, come answer your door, man. I need to talk to you. Um, and he wouldn't answer his door. And I mean, I was outside, no kidding, for a good 45 minutes or so, pounding on the front door and the windows. He wouldn't come answer, he wouldn't come out. Um, so sadly, and you know, one of the things I do regret um, this night was just how things played out. I, I went to my car and I had a tool bag in the back of my car and I took a hammer out and I walked up to the front door and he had side lights, sort of side windows, and I smashed one of the side lights out with the hammer and put it in a backpack that I had and I swung the backpack over my shoulder and I climbed in the sidelight in his house, walked straight in there and sure enough there was a, a circle of instrument in the living room first of all. So I was like, yep, there's the, there's the uh, music leader setup right here. And uh, I went down a hallway towards the bedroom and as I did so, one of the doors opened and a, and a man and a woman walked out that were obviously not him because I had seen his mugshot. Um, unbeknownst to me, he, he lived in a billion dollar home but it had been converted to a bed and breakfast. So I told them, get back in the bedroom, this doesn't have anything to do with you. And they sort of backed up and shut the door. Um, and then uh, I came around the corner and saw the, the master bedroom door was, was closing. <clears throat> so I sort of kicked it open with my foot and stepped in there, and there he was. And this guy was probably six foot five, well over 300 pounds. He was a large individual, much larger than I anticipated. Um, and, uh, you know, I looked up at him and told him, sit down, get on the, get on the bed. Um, and he didn't want to comply with anything I was saying. 
Um, and after a couple of seconds, um, he started swinging on me, and I let him punch me once or twice. And uh, I had set the backpack down on the floor in between us. And after he hit me a couple of times, it just registered in my consciousness. It was the most bizarre thing. He was the absolute sitting image of my stepfather, a guy that had molested and beaten my brother and I for so many years. I mean, you put a picture of them side by side, they're, you virtually cannot tell the difference. Um, and just in that moment, as he was punching me in the face, I just, I was just stricken with this feeling that I cannot lose this fight. I will not lose this fight. And uh, I, it's like I reverted back to those childhood encounters where he was the one with the weapon beating me mercilessly, no matter what I did. And uh, I squatted down and reached in the backpack and pulled that hammer out. And the first time I cracked him was in his collarbone and broke his collarbone immediately. And uh, he sort of dropped down a little bit um, and was still trying to punch and grab me. Uh, and I hit him two more times, I believe, in the head with this hammer, sort of glancing blows. And uh, he sort of slumped a little bit. And uh, again, in my mind, um, I am fighting my stepdad. That's just, it was just, it's difficult for me to describe, but uh, in my spirit, that's what was happening there. Um, and again, I said some things to him. Um, he asked me, you know, like who I was or why I was there. And I told him, you can consider me an avenging angel for the children you're molesting. Unbeknownst to Jason, during the assault, the police had been called and were on their way to his location. Got in my car, and as I drove away, his home was sort of at the end of a dead-end one-way road. Um, and as I got to the end of that road, the police were just roaring in with their lights on, and they saw my car exiting in kind of a hurry, and they surrounded me immediately. Um, it was kind of surreal because as I got out, they were patting me on the back, and a couple of them were trying to shake my hand, my hand cuffed behind my back, saying, did you get him good? Did you get that motherfucker? Um, so they definitely knew what sort of person he was. Yeah. Um, and, and meanwhile, I was not celebrating by any means. I was very stoic and, and sober feeling. I was thinking perhaps I had killed him. Um, I was coming to the terms with, you know, I had just, uh, the rest of my life was gone, and perhaps I had taken someone else's life. Um, and all of those thoughts were settling into my mind. Um, and then uh, I saw an ambulance go by, you know, and eventually after 40 minutes or so, they uh, put me in the police car and started driving me to jail. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, it would seem the man that Jason assaulted on that last occasion would go to the media to tell his story. And this in turn would be how Jason would get his title, The Alaskan Avenger. You so said, I'm going to... I'm an avenging angel. I'm going to mete out justice. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Can I just say, you are amazing. Yes, you The word continues to spread and the OMR community continues to grow and I am beyond grateful for it. As always, a big shout out to our incredible OMR patrons who support this show each month. Jurors like Donna Fox, Kirsty Dyer, Julia Sidnell, Brittany Hayes, our OMR family members, Michelle Russell, Jess Bockholt, supporters like Delta, no last name there, but I'm assuming it's Delta Goodrum, hi Delts, Tim Stewart, Jen Mooney, you are all amazing. All of our Patreons who support this show every single month. Uh, Thank you so much indeed. If you would like to know how you can join the OMR family, just click the link in the show notes of this episode. Jason Vukovic, the man they call the Alaskan Avenger, would apparently get this name after the man he attacked with the hammer the night he was arrested would contact the media and give an interview about Jason. And interestingly, from after he left the emergency room the next day, he called the press and gave an interview, um, and he is the one that gave that moniker to the press. He called the press and gave an interview? Yes, for sure. He was a victim, yeah, for Mm, sure. And this is something that is very common amongst child predators, just to be clear. Mm. They are narcissistic, egotistical, manipulative uh, people, and um, though they make a habit of victimizing young children, they are always the victims. Mm. The system is against them, you know, they, and this is very, very common um, with them. I was surprised, but I was not surprised, you know, that he would seek out publicity and notoriety because he'd been assaulted um, for being a pedophile. You know, I, it, it didn't surprise me. That's the sort of behavior I expect from them. And this is that very interview. So the guy hit me in the head six times. Wesley Demarest is one of several men Bukovic is accused of assaulting. I feared he was going to kill me. He says Bukovic broke into his home in the middle of the night and beat his head with a hammer. He said, I'm going to, I'm an avenging angel. I'm going to 
mete out justice for the people you hurt. In 2006, Demers pled no contest to attempted sexual abuse of a minor. He's been on the list a long time. I get off when I'm 72. He says he understands why the list exists, but after the attack, he wonders if it offers too much information. I don't think that their place they work should be listed. Um, I don't think their address should be public knowledge. I think the name should be enough. He says he thinks about his crime every day, how it's affected his own life. How long do I have to pay for it every time I get turned down for a job? But then he remembers his victim. How long is she going to have to live with it? Yeah, okay, so I'll live with it forever. Then. In some ways, he's resigned to his fate. Jason is taken into custody and booked into the local jail and immediately sees the news stories begin to appear, something he says he was never proud of. They didn't ask me a bunch of questions at all. They did keep my clothing when I was booked into jail because there was blood evidence on the clothing. Um, and, you know, I was just sort of, you know, quietly booked into the jail. Um, and I, I think my, my stuff was on the news, you know, kind of immediately, and the inmates in the jail in the moment you know, we're, hey, bro, hey, bro, come and you're on TV. And, you know, it was such a personal and, and visceral experience for me that I don't think I have ever or, or did ever, even to this day, celebrate the criminality of, you know, what transpired, you know, mm. sort of somber, you know, maybe it's cool in some people's minds or whatever, but to myself, you know, it cost me everything. And, I never, never intended for there to be any publicity of any sort except for behind the scenes. You know, I definitely wanted that child molester community to be concerned that they should stop victimizing children because some people didn't appreciate it. So Jason's been arrested. The police have statements from the men he has attacked and can identify him, as well as video evidence of him committing one of the assaults. So I wanted to ask if at any stage he considered concealing his identity so they might go undetected during these crimes. You made a point of saying that you always went in there with no mask on, you know, no, no weapons most of the time. Obviously, the hammer was the once of occasion. Did you ever think about, you know, concealing your identity? Never. Never, not one time. And I think that's, that's sort of part and parcel with, you know, the, the reasons why I was even motivated to be there to begin with. I wanted them to see me. And I wanted to see them clearly, and I wanted them to know that I saw them. Uh, and I didn't want to hide any part of who I was from them. Um, because, you know, part of being an abused kid is you're ashamed and you hide what is done from you and yeah. you hide your feelings and you hide the broken part of you. So I think, you know, a big part of me even going there is I want you to see me and see my face, you know? So. Yeah, it's kind of like this whole, I'm not that kid anymore, I'm, you know, you're going to see my face. Yeah. And, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And at the same time, you know, keep in mind, I, I held myself to that same standard. I mean, you can imagine going into a stranger's home, but you had to be very aware in the moment. Perhaps they had weapons, perhaps they had a knife or a gun or all types of things you had to be, you know, very, very conscientious of, and I mean, kind of interestingly, in hindsight, as I analyze my own choices and behaviors, yet again, it seems to be a time in my life when I, I, 
was so uh, had no concern for consequences to self either that I was willing to risk any of those potential consequences for the sake um, of, of you know believing in what I was doing. Yeah, because I mean, in you recounting these moments and these stories to me, not once have you mentioned, you know, I, I drove to the house, you know, staked it out for a bit, saw their movements. It was a case of you rocked up there, banged on the door, they were there, you pushed your way in. So, so I suppose at, at no yeah. stage was this sort of, obviously it was kind of premeditated, but there was no real thought, deep thought into it. It wasn't a case of I'm going to watch what this guy's doing day to day, wait till he's on his own, make sure these things like he doesn't right. have a gun and he doesn't have a, you know, maybe a, a pit bull that's going to jump out and attack me and that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And part of that plays into your other question about religiosity. You have to realize I was a person, I am a person who from as far back as I could remember up until 15 when I ran away from home, I was heavily indoctrinated three, four days a week into the invisible plane and its interaction with daily life. Spiritual beings that speak to you, guide you, that, you know, you should listen for their voice. Uh, you know, praying to invisible guy and, and asking him to fix your life or your world or things like that. Like, that was considered normal. Yeah. Um, beyond normal, that was anyone else who didn't think or behave uh, uh, under those same circumstances was abnormal and was wrong and was crazy and insane and, you know, was going to go burn in hell forever. I mean, if you think about the intensity of that, it carries over into your adult life, even if you change the terms and you are now not praying to a specific individual entity. Like, for instance, I would tell you my intuition and my internal compass guided me out to that compound that night in Hayden Lake, Idaho, where, you know, at another stage in my life, I would have told I had fallen under the dominion of an officiating angel, and I was guided by an angel to that place to yeah. handle that business. I would have said that, yeah. you know, so... No matter what, you are raised with that connectivity to the invisible, and, and it guides you. And that and that plays hard and parcel to not, you know, taking practical measures <laughs> to make sure yeah. you're you're not in jeopardy yourself. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Jason's formally charged with a staggering amount of felonies before they agree on a plea bargain, and Jason has a discussion regarding sentencing with his attorney. Well, I was initially charged with. 21 felonies. They charged me with seven felonies for each pedophile. Um, in the end of it all, they consolidated and dismissed a bunch of them, and I pled guilty to attempted first-degree assault and to first-degree robbery because on a couple of occasions, oh, took uh, I took or people with me took items from them. Yeah. yeah. Now, mind you, through a donation, I retained an attorney for $2,000 to represent me at sentencing. Yeah. So not to disparage this attorney, but you can imagine the sort of representation you're getting for, for $2,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, probably not Matlock yeah. coming to, to <laughs> defend you. Um, so the discussion was basically, listen, we can take this to trial. And he told me we could seek, it's called jury nullification, which means even though the jury sees the evidence and they know you're guilty, they vote not guilty because they believe in the nature the reasoning behind you doing what you did. Yeah. Uh, but, but he said, if that doesn't take place, the state of Alaska will stack 
the time associated with each one of those charges. I agreed to an open sentencing, um, but before that transpired, you know, I'm a simple guy, um, and the the newspaper, once it had had printed publicity to my case, if I wanted to communicate something to the prosecutor's office, I would just write a letter and send it to the newspaper, and they would publish it front page. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so I wrote them. I wrote a letter to the prosecutor's office. I didn't consult with my attorney prior to doing so, mind you. Um, and I thought it was very smart and pragmatic and very linear. Um, and I told him, uh, I'll plead guilty to any combination of charges you wish. Um, just one caveat um, for my sentence to equal in length what each one of the pedophiles I assaulted served in prison for assaulting a child, their child victim. Mm. Um, so all three of them combined, it came to six years, nine months. Um, and then I also told him, I will also serve the three years in prison that you suspended for the monster that made me when I was a young child. I'll serve the three years he never served. So nine years, nine months, run that. I'll plead guilty to whatever you want. And uh, needless to say, in general, they were summarily offended by the arrogance or the audacity of me uh, uh, directly approaching them publicly with a request for a sentence. But I, I, my intention was not to be arrogant or rude uh, by any means. My intention was for our interaction and discussion about this matter to be public. Yeah and for the community to be aware of what was transpiring. Um, and I also thought that I should not walk away and not do any jail time. I didn't think I was innocent. I didn't think all-out vigilantism is appropriate in any ordered society. I thought that I should serve some prison time, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I thought it should be fair and equitable, and I could not imagine in any modern society that you would deem it appropriate for a person that assaults pedophiles to serve more time in prison than the pedophiles who systematically assault children. Mm. That, to me, is just mind-numbing. Jason has his day in court to be sentenced. A courtroom, which would you believe, is the exact courtroom he was in 20-plus years ago when his stepfather was given a three-year suspended sentence for the crimes he committed against Jason and his brother. Yet this time, it's Jason on trial, and it's the sex offenders that are witnesses against him. And bro, it was surreal for me to stand there in the courtroom, and mind you, two of the three pedophiles showed up in court to testify against me, and to listen to them stand beside me and say how horrible it was for them. They had to check their locks at night, and they were scared for someone to come in their house, and they couldn't sleep well at night. And I was just sort of standing there silently thinking to myself, yeah, yes. Now you get it. What they didn't know, what no one involved in any of this process knew was I had already lost my life. It was taken from me when I was 10, 8, 9 years old um, by a child molester. My life was gone. Whatever it would have been, whoever I could have been, it was already gone. I already was serving a life sentence. Um, So to stand there in the courtroom and listen to them levy this punishment on me, it hurt and it was surreal. Um, But again, it was like you know, breaking the leg on somebody who already had broken his leg. You know, I was already, I was already sentenced. He then goes on to tell me that if it hadn't been for his brother's testimony that day, he essentially would have been painted as nothing more than a violent criminal. They wanted to turn this into a narrative that I was just a scumbag criminal that was out there victimizing soft targets. Mm. They were very intent on doing that, and they wanted to 
disavow or, or disregard all of the mountain of evidence contrary, you know. That's why I was so grateful that my brother took the time to fly up and testify to the court, um, because basically without him there um, to further, you know, verify and validate the truth of our childhood, it's like the state of Alaska was even prepared to attempt to disregard the conviction on record of our father um, and basically try to say, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know. Um, So it, it was a pretty... It was a pretty astoundingly horrible experience, you know, all the way around. So as I mentioned at the start of this story back in episode one, there is a photo of Jason and his brother that went viral online, a very powerful photo of Jason and his brother looking at each other. Jason in his prison yellows, his brother in a very nice suit, hands on hips. Jason with a massive smile on his face as he looks at his brother. Jason then goes on to tell me the true story behind that very photo. Sadly, that day when he ran away from home, I never saw him again ever in my lifetime until I was in court being sentenced uh, for assaulting the pedophiles, which is the basis of my conviction that I'm doing time for now. Um, I didn't see him in all of those years, and it was an interesting thing because seeing my brother again for the first time just absolutely brightened my soul um, and I thought to myself when I saw him, you know what, this, this whole situation, I've lost everything, but I was like, at least I got my brother back. This is the best part of this whole situation. And strangely, after all of the testimony was done, he came and visited me and sat in the visitation booth and he told me, I'm sorry, bro. He said, I love you, but seeing your face and having you around me just brings back all of the trauma from our childhood that I've worked so hard to put behind me. And he's like, uh, I cannot be around you. I can't see you. I can't be around you. And so after that court hearing, I have literally never heard from him again, ever, not once. He left and never came back again. So. I mean, that's, yeah, that's incredibly sad. And it makes, there's a, um, fo- there's a photo of you and your brother in court that's, that's kind of gone um, viral um, of you looking at him and him looking at you and you smiling at him. It makes that photo even more powerful. The thing that is shocking about it is at that stage in my life, I had never had two seconds of therapy or counseling or anything to address any of the underlying issues in my life. So I, I could not comprehend or even accept him saying that he could not see me or be around me. I just didn't, I couldn't process it. I didn't understand it. Uh, and it was an absolutely devastating blow Um, And for a number of months after that, I was thinking to myself, man, there is no way he's not going to write me back. There's no way he's not going to answer if I call. So I tried calling him and calling him and calling him, never would answer. I wrote to him, wrote to him, wrote to him. He would never respond. And uh, again, after years of self-healing and self-work and some outside very limited therapy, um, you know, I finally figured out, like, you know, this childhood trauma and sexual abuse is so potent and so devastating and so powerful that sadly, if I love him the way that I say I do, then probably the best thing I can do is respect his progress and his path and just let it go. That must be that must be extremely extremely hard because as as I said yeah. you know there is that photo of you two looking at each other in the court 
you know, you're in your prison yellows and he's standing there in his suit and you're looking yeah. at him and smiling at him and he's looking back at you. And it's, it's a very, very powerful photo um, and it's been shared a hell of a lot online yeah. here. And to know yeah. that that was the first time you'd seen your brother in so many years and the last time you would see him, as I said, just makes that yeah. even more powerful and just, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. But, of course, as you've said, the abuse that you and your brother suffered as, as kids, you know, was horrendous and, and his way of healing, I guess, is to try and cut ties with that past and try and move on. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He's then sentenced to a maximum of 23 years incarceration and is shipped off to a maximum security prison, which is not the place that he finds himself in now. In the last seven months, he's been serving his sentence in a facility that is considered a place for people to go after they've proved themselves to be well-behaved. Although this prison seems to be a strange setup, Jason tells me it also houses short-term inmates awaiting trial, which is pretty unusual. More than half of the population here is still in pretrial. They haven't even received a prison sentence or been convicted of anything. So it's a very odd arrangement. They have us lumped in with guys fresh off the street, guys just passing through. So this reduces the amount of real serious violent encounters because that takes time and gang organization and things like that. Um, but it increases the incidence of small happenstance, occasional violence, you know what I mean? Guys getting punched in the face or somebody freaking out because they're detoxing and needing to be slapped or, you know, stuff like that. So The jail situation is for those instances, I thought, where, you know, the people off the street, they go to jail until such time as they get their sentence, but you have those guys come straight into your prison. Yeah, it's bizarre, and, and it's honestly a absolutely horrible way to manage sentenced people because now... Uh, after this many years of me doing time, I am forced to be around guys that don't even shower or they're still throwing up and detoxing or they haven't learned how to resect each other or themselves in a prison environment. Um, it's been a challenge. I've been here for six and a half, seven months at this particular prison, you know, and it was all very interesting. It's like, uh, mind you, um, I never was maximum custody to begin with. I was medium custody the whole time. So I should have never even been housed at the max joint. But I was there for the first six years. Uh, so coming here, sort of your reward for good behavior and having a low custody level is a whole bunch more hassle and a whole bunch more, um, you know, weird negative bullshit to deal with. So would you prefer to be back in the max or are you happier where you are now? There are benefits to each. And I suppose the primary benefit to me in coming here is that um, it slightly increases the the, your chance of getting a favorable ruling from the parole board. Right, okay, um, cause because you're in, you're, in a, a, you're in a more relaxed yeah, prison, so it looks, yeah. like, it looks good because you've been obviously right. be, good behavior. Right. Yeah, we've sort of heard behind the scenes that when the parole board visits Seward, you know, the max joint, it's pretty much guaranteed virtually no one will get parole approved just because they're housed there. So... You know, that, okay. that's sort of known amongst the inmates. So coming here at least gives you a fractionally better chance of being paroled. And on the subject of parole, well, Jason, in fact, has his parole hearing coming up this April. So um, the second week of April um, is when they'll have the hearing for discretionary parole. Um, you know, and the thing, again, that makes this, you know, again, one of these spiritual or, or you know, bizarre connections um, is if they grant my discretionary parole and, and I should rock, walk out of here in July, 
um, basically, I will have served the six years, nine months. I was going to say. Um, that mm-hmm. all the three pedophiles served combined, yeah. It, it basically will be the offer that I gave them initially. I will have served that amount of time. In my mind, that's that's quite reasonable. You know, maybe we can get um, listeners, if anybody's listening, and they want to write a, write a letter to uh, the Department of Corrections Parole Board, attention, Executive Director Jeff Edwards, the address is 619 East Ship Creek, Studio 241, and that's Anchorage, Alaska, 99501, and it's obviously in the USA. Um, that would be that would be excellent. Um, also, if they want to go online and go to the uh, change.org, we've got a petition there um, that people can can sign, um, which would be great. I think there's 15 or 20,000 signatures on that thing already. And then uh, also, my baby sister, obviously, if you look up free Jason Bukovic, um, she's got, you know, some profiles on different online platforms that they can check out that, you know, they can navigate to help me out if they feel so inclined. Well, we're going to promote all of those channels, and I'd love to talk to you around the parole time. Awesome. I appreciate you, Jack. No, Thanks for your time. Thank and, you, uh, my friend. love to everybody. Everybody's together. Stay safe, brother, and I really appreciate you telling me your story. All right, sir. Yep. All right, bro. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That, for now, is the story of Jason Fukovic, the Alaskan Avenger. But it is not the end, as we check back in with Jason after his parole hearing to hopefully get some good news. As we do wrap up Jason's story... I think it's important that we address its contents as a whole. Now, I said at the very beginning that Jason's incredible story raises many issues. Of course, one of the major ones being whether or not people agree with his actions in dealing with convicted criminals. Is it ever okay to take the law into your own hands? Have people lost faith in the justice system to properly deal with these crimes and hand out appropriate sentences? I think we can all safely agree that a three-year suspended sentence handed down to Jason's abuser was a complete failure of any form of justice at all. Not only did it fail in its sentencing, but also what is just incomprehensible is that they sent Jason home with his abuser. The system then continues to fail by not giving Jason access to any form of help in which to allow him to confront his past and to try and deal with the trauma that he faced. Then there's the discussion of Jason's past criminal history. It is, of course, never okay to steal from anyone or take things that don't belong to you. Jason is the first to admit that. He's certainly not proud of that part of his past. However, I think what this story is, is a brilliant case study of how a life can be changed when someone gets help for past trauma. You have two brothers who both suffered the same abuse. One who had someone there to help facilitate and get him the help he needed. He went on to become very successful, build a good career and life away from his past. Now, of course, I've been unable to speak with Jason's brother and I'm sure his life post his abuse wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. But he's not sitting in a jail cell like his brother, having led a life of crime and vigilantism. Could Jason's life had gone down a different path had someone stepped in and removed him from that situation, got him the help he needed and shown him proper love and care? 
Now, I would like to make a point that this show certainly does not in any way advocate the use of vigilante justice as a means of dealing with individuals. It is also never the job of this show to take sides, just to allow people to tell their stories and create conversation. I knew from the very beginning that this story would divide people and create debate. And it certainly has done that. In our own private Facebook group of two and a half thousand people, what I am truly proud of is the way in which it has created healthy debate between individuals with very different opinions. The OMR community is one that is open to honest and healthy discussion. And I am very, very proud of that. So thank you. Jason is obviously a man who says he is guilty. He was caught and the evidence against him was there in plain sight. Witnesses and video evidence. But what happens if the evidence in your case is manufactured? My name is Evaristo Salas Jr. I was uh, wrongly convicted of first degree uh, premeditated murder when I was 15 years old uh, and I was sentenced to 32 years, nine months. Then what happens if it is eventually revealed that it was manufactured. But it's not just you saying that it was manufactured. In fact, it is eventually revealed that it was manufactured to the public. Yet you are still in prison for murder. You know, it was enough to show that this this boy was railroaded. Like you said, they didn't have enough. He manufactured something just to get it over the edge. You know, he got overzealous. And I even asked him, you know, it's in the show, I asked him, you know, I mean, how many times have you investigated? He said, this was my first... You know, he wanted to solve it. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Network.